Well, we've spent a couple of Sundays in Acts 17, the history Luke recorded of the founding of the church at Thessalonica and the events that happened there. And we left Paul down in southern Greece, because Thessalonica is in northern Greece called Macedonia, southern Greece is Achaia. Paul is down in southern Greece waiting eagerly for Silas and Timothy to join him. You remember that uh, Paul and Silas had been driven out of Thessalonica and Paul out of Berea. And, you know, throughout the book of Acts, we see these efforts to shut down gospel effort and shut down those that are sharing the gospel, and we see it just spread the gospel even further. And that's exactly what happened. Paul kept sowing gospel seed, and God granted a harvest wherever he went. And despite those victories and the kind of turning on its head the efforts of the adversaries, Paul nonetheless has deep concern for the believers that he left in Thessalonica because it was there where that that hub of hostility was, and they had to live with it. You know, Paul and Silas escaped, and then Paul from Berea, but you remember the troublemakers in Berea were actually from Thessalonica as well. So what would it be like to actually live in the city that was the the hub of that persecution? What would it be like to have to face that uh, all the time? And Paul's very concerned that how they are faring, whether they will survive. So when Silas and Timothy finally arrive with word of the Thessalonian believers thriving in the hostile world in which they live, Paul is overjoyed, and he sets pen to, not paper, but the forerunner of that, papyrus, and he he writes a letter um, expressing his joy at hearing how well they are doing. He feels deeply connected to them. We want to look at the opening of that letter uh, this morning. So we're in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 3. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In our letters today, we usually sign at the end. But in the first century, you would put your name at the beginning, and that's what Paul does here. He begins his letter in keeping with the customs of the time, but with clearly Christian content. After his usual greeting of grace and peace that he actually sends to all of the various churches that he writes, the main statement he makes in these opening verses is in 1 Thessalonians 1, in the first part of verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you. In our everyday lives, it's common courtesy for us to say thank you. We teach our kids to do that from the time that they can talk. When somebody gives you something or does something for you, we say thank you. But when we say, I am thankful to God for you, we are expressing something more. I'd like you to take a moment and just think about the last time someone said something like that to you, or the last time you said that 
to someone else. I am thankful for you. Conveys that you value the person, that you consider him or her a gift from God to you because you see God at work in that person in some way. Paul was good at expressing this kind of Christian affection for those with whom he was connected through the gospel. It's like what he said to the Philippian believers, I hold you in my heart. Here he is, the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, one of the most prolific missionaries ever, the writer of half the New Testament. But it's, it's clear the way he writes that he's not in it for himself. I mean, even when he defends his apostleship, it's for the sake of those that he's writing. He highly values others, and he regularly tells them so. If we see the hand of God in the relationships that we have, I am thankful for you should be one of the ways that we communicate our heart toward one another. And in these opening verses of 1 Thessalonians, Paul reveals to us gospel reasons to be thankful for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would just make the, the comment that gratitude, a grateful heart to God, particularly for the people in your life, is one of the best ways to sweeten your life. And but are the best ways for you to have an, an attitude toward life that's actually productive and is, is healing toward others. So Paul reveals he is thankful. First off, he says, because we're connected to you as fellow members of God's forever family. This is ultimately the reason for his thankfulness. This, this connection that he has with these believers is a God thing. Um, as we look around today, the connection that we have with one another, uh, you could explain some of it by dem demographic, uh, but, but most of it is just that th these are people that are trusting in Jesus. And as you get to know their story, there's a huge variety, and there's really no reason that we should be connected with each other the way we are, but for God's gospel work in us. We're connected to you. And because of that connection, we're, we're thankful, so, so we are praying for you. People you're thankful for, you, you pray for, because if you're thanking God for them, you're already talking to God. It's natural to move on to talking to God on their behalf, thanking God for them, but also praying for them. And then those prayers are fueled by this as well. We are thinking about you. And that's essentially what the word remember has in mind, not I forgot, but I'm keeping you in mind. So, we're connected to you, we're praying for you, we are thinking about you, and all of this is, is modifying in our text. It modifies that main statement, we are thankful to God for you. So, let's explore this for ourselves, because these are characteristics not unique to the Thessalonian believers. These are characteristics that actually would be true, would resonate among any of God's people, truly born-again people. So let's start with the foundational one. We are connected to you as fellow members of God's forever family, and you, you feel it in this opening. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So here we have the missionary team, Paul, 
the apostle. We're well familiar with him. Silvanus, now that sounds a little different to us because we remember the name Silas. Well, Silvanus is the Roman version, the Latin version of the Greek name Silas. So it would be like if you were going from Spanish to English, you would pronounce the word a little bit different. You might spell it a little bit different. Same with Latin and, and Greek. So Silvanus is Silas. He was Paul's companion on the second missionary journey. After Paul and Barnabas split ways in their disagreement about whether John Mark should go with them. Remember that Barnabas is related to John Mark. In the first missionary journey, John Mark bailed out, and Paul just wasn't sure that he wanted to bring John Mark along for the second missionary journey. He wasn't confident that he could uh, hold in there. That changed over time. Of course, John Mark became the writer of the gospel of Mark, and uh, God used him. So, Initial failures don't have to be the story of your life. It wasn't the story of John Mark's life. But that led to Paul having a different companion here, Paul and Silas, on this missionary journey. And then we all know Timothy well because Paul actually wrote a couple letters to Timothy, and Paul calls him his son in the faith. Um, when Timothy was about 18 years old, that was the first time that, that he met the apostle Paul. Is about the time that Paul had just been stoned and dragged for dead outside the city. And so Timothy knew from the get-go that serving Jesus wasn't an easy road. And so it's striking that Timothy then would join uh, Paul on this second missionary journey, uh, knowing that, that this isn't just going to be touring um, and taking in the sights. This, this means you're going to suffer for Jesus. So Silas and Timothy had stayed at Berea when Paul was conducted by the brothers south down to the great city of Athens, and now they've joined Paul in southern Greece. He writes to the church of the Thessalonians. We remind you that the church is not a building, it's people. The church is a people, born-again persons who put their faith in Christ Jesus. He's the head of the church. We are members of his body, uh, just like members of your physical body. We work together to display the Spirit of Christ. The term church, ecclesia, you've heard of ecclesiastical matters. Those are church matters. Ecclesia was actually a term used for Greek assemblies of citizens that were called out. That's what the term means, to vote on political and community decisions. And this is the term that was used for God's assembly, the assembly, uh, the called out ones of Jesus Christ now in, a, in a, um, a citizenship, have an identity that goes well beyond just a city, state, or a nation, but is part of that everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ. He writes, we are this, you are the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not just citizens of an everlasting kingdom. They are beloved children of the family of God. The one who's brought them into the family is the Savior King. His given human name is Jesus. Yahweh saves. He's the God-man Savior, for He shall save His people from their sins. And He's called the Christ. That's the title. The Messiah, the Anointed One, the promised Redeemer and King who would crush the serpent's head and would redeem His people from sin and death. 
the one in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed, the one who would rule over a kingdom that would never pass away. This is the Christ. This is Jesus, and He is Lord, Yahweh Himself, Master of the universe. It's because of their connection to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, because of God's divine work in them, that now they're connected to the missionary team. They are part of the church of Jesus Christ. And we might well ask the question, how could anybody hope to enter such a privileged family and kingdom? When you think about the great ones of the earth, you think about the ones that exercise great power, the ones that have great wealth, the ones that have great influence, chances are there's, there's hardly a one of us who will even have five minutes with such people. On occasion, you might meet them. You know, you might have your collection of photos with the different people that ran for office or something like that. Um, but, but the people that are truly powerful the people that are truly great in the earth, we have very little connection with. Now, what if you up that to the infinite degree? How, how, how do sinners, how do finite mortal beings like us ever have the right to say that God is my Father? How do we have the right to say, I am part of an everlasting kingdom that will never pass away, that's greater than all the kingdoms of this earth? How can anybody merit that kind of that kind of privilege, well, the reality is we can't. We can't. I mean, really, Jesus, God's Son, the perfect, only perfect human being that ever lived, is the only one that merited it, and it's through Him that we enjoy this privilege. And that's why Paul immediately moves to grace to you and peace. Grace, you know, means favor that you haven't earned unmerited favor. It's, it's goodness. It's beauty. It's, it's a benediction of, of God conferring on you uh, all that is valuable. And we have received grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. But you'll note he doesn't say those that have received grace. He says grace to you. In other words, it's a prayer. It's a, it's a benediction. It's saying, okay, I want more grace to be conferred on you. The grace that we receive in Jesus Christ granted us forgiveness and cleansing and life in the family of God, but the reality is that every single day that we live on this planet, and indeed throughout eternity, we still need grace. I don't want God to limit what He pours into my life to what I, only what I earn. Because what I earn, it actually, there's a, there's a lot I don't want to see coming my way. I, I need grace every day. We, we're established in grace. We live by grace. Um, as Newton put it, you know, amazing grace, and it's, it's grace that will lead me home. I need grace all along the way. And Paul prays that for the Thessalonian believers as they continue their journey of faith. They need God's grace poured out in their lives. I mean, at the very least, they need that given the hostility that they face. But, but even given the normal trials of life and the challenges to our faith, we need God's grace to help us in that battle. I mean, how many defections do we have to see? How much deconstruction do we have to witness? How, how, many, how many people falling away do you, 
you know, how many disasters you have to see to not know that I need God to, to take care of me in a way that I don't deserve. And so, grace to you. They were keenly aware of the ongoing divine help they needed to survive and thrive despite the hostility that they faced in their community, that hostility that drove the missionaries from their city. And that hostility actually reflects the spiritual war, this antagonism of Satan against God and his people. I mean, the people in the marketplace and the Jews that were stirred up, that that rejected the message of the gospel, uh, forgetting that God had said he would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's seed. But but, but, but their hostility was actually a hostility. It wasn't just human hostility. It, it's a hostility that Satan had borne toward God and his people all through the ages. They needed grace to keep living for God, not just because of those enemies on the outside, but also the enemies within, the enemy of their, their own appetites, the enemy of their own resistance to God that, that flows from being part of a race of sinners. We are sinners by birth and by choice. The battle against their own sin would continue all their days on earth, just as ours does. Look, you might be young and you think, oh, well, I can't wait till I'm older and, and I'm not having to fight the battle anymore. I hate to tell you. In fact, if, you, if your brothers and sisters will be honest with you, they can tell you about victories. They can t- maybe the, there, there's been some things that have changed up, but I'll tell you this, if they're honest with you, they say, I thought it wouldn't be so hard. We have good days, we have bad days, but the battle wages on because we're not home yet, so we need God's grace. Grace to you and peace. That's certainly a a term that recalls the, really the, the Hebrew background of the Apostle Paul, shalom. Shalom, not just the absence of conflict, but also presence of well-being, a fullness of life as it should be. It's possible, it's possible only because of grace. It is by the grace of God that we experience the peace of God. And we need this peace of God to flow like a never-ending river into our lives as we live in a world that naturally disrupts our sense of peace. Do you find yourself fretful? You've probably been listening to too much news. Hey? Do, do you find yourself agitated? Well, the agitation, that, that's the way the world is. In fact, um, the prophets will often describe the world as a raging sea. If you want peace, there's only one place you're going to find it, and that's through Jesus, Prince of Peace. That's through God who gives us grace. The human heart longs for peace. It seeks to find a path to it, but peace comes only as a gift, the gift of God's grace through Christ Jesus our Lord. You're thinking about all the efforts throughout all the ages of trying to get at peace, trying to create peace, trying to make the world a better place. And that's noble, and it's consistent with what God has given human beings to do, but we consistently fail at it. We consistently find disruption to what we've accomplished. We need the peace of God. Well, Paul and Silas and Timothy are thankful to God 
for the Thessalonian believers because of their very identity. They are children of the Father, along with the grace and peace that they enjoy, which come from God alone. Apart from God, these things are out of reach for us. And that's why it would make sense for the missionaries to thank God for the members of the church at the Thessalonian church. I mean, they, they shouldn't have come into being. It, it should have been aborted right at the beginning with all of the, the flack they were getting. Well, this morning, I want you to, to look around you at the faces of those that are gathered here. I know you're all facing this way. It's a little harder to do, but as you, maybe as we end the service and you turn around, um, try to get where you're not just looking at the backs of people, but look at those faces. Think about the people that are behind those faces. Whom do you know well enough to be assured that they're actual born-again brothers and sisters in Christ? In fact, even in your mind's eye, you can be thinking of names and, and faces. Think of all the blessings of God evident on them and in them and flowing through them to you. These things did not happen by chance. Your connection with the people here that are born again is purely by the grace of God at work in their lives and in yours. So, thank God for them. The reality is we only have a window of time to work together. But we have eternity where we'll enjoy one another's company. Thank God for them and tell them you are thankful to God for them, just as Paul does the believers in Thessalonica. Think about how this changes the way you live life. If you will live your life in the reality of what God has done to connect you to His children, not just taking it for granted, it, it wasn't because you were such a great person that you got this privilege. It was by His grace. He, he has worked to connect you to these people so, so treat them that way. Thank God for them. Serve them. Love them. Let what God is doing in their life cause your heart to sing. Who needs to hear you say this week, I am thankful to God for you? Now, when you say it this week, they'll say, oh, you must have heard Pastor Connie's message. <laughs> but, but if you remember to say it a month from now, I, it'll take even, you know, mean even more. But, but, but think about, think about what God has done. It's so easy to think about their flaws. It's so easy to think about, oh, you know, maybe the argument that you had or, or that person's not a very friendly person or whatever. Instead of thinking about what am I seeing in their life that God is doing and that set them apart and has brought them into this company? Think about that. Observe that. Let, let it work on your own soul and then express to them, I am thankful to God for you. Think, think about life without those people.
but God has put them in your life. I'm thankful to God for you. Well, this thankfulness also means that Paul is praying for these believers. We are praying for you. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So if you're continuing to thank God for your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're already talking to God about them, it only makes sense that you would pray for them regularly. So when you pray, you're, you're thanking God for them. And then when you pray, you're bringing before Him what you know they're facing. In the case of the Thessalonian believers, there were open enemies to the gospel making life difficult for them. I mean, physically abusing this, and, and legally too. And this reality had Paul deeply concerned that they might not be faring well. So when Silas and Timothy arrive with news of their healthy survival and growth in Christ, he's deeply relieved, he's overjoyed. So what trials are your brothers and sisters in Christ facing? Pray for those specifically. Pray that their faith will not fail. Pray that they will grow. Pray that they will experience joy in Christ. Pray that God will use them to display and advance the gospel among the people that know them. This is exactly what was happening among the Thessalonian believers. Look, if you're aware of their flaws and failures, then pray for God to help them in their battle for purity and holiness and for integrity and maturity. Pray that God will keep their heart and yours connected through closeness to Jesus. This is something we just regularly, you know, we need to discipline ourselves to do. Um, it comes naturally to some degree, but it's maintained through being intentional. You've all, everybody's got the same amount of time, and what you do with it is up to you. So, so there are ways for you to accomplish this. Uh, you look at the, the people God has gathered here and you say, well, how can I keep them in mind? How can I pray for them? Well, this is why we have a member's prayer directory, and we call it that. And there's lots of information there. Their children, uh, our gospel partners, um, all kinds of information for you to be able to pray and put face to the name and pray for these individuals. And we encourage you to do that regularly. Just work through that directory. And then when you see these people, uh, when you're in the congregation, then you remember, hey, I prayed for you. And it probably wouldn't be a bad idea. I prayed for, I prayed for you today. You were, on my, you were on the page that I was praying on today. And you have other reasons to pray for them as well. You'll develop your own list. There are some people maybe in your life group or, or that you work with or, for, or in your neighborhood uh, for various reasons, you have more connection with, and, and you know what they're facing. You know what they're going through. I mean, uh, just today, you know, when we announce that, that a loved one has passed, we know that, we know, hey, this is a time those people need prayer. They need our love. So make your own list and keep up with that. And then you're going to have to do something more than that. You're going to have to find a dedicated time. You want to be praying without ceasing, but you need a baseline. You need a time when you're reviewing these things. And I encourage you to make this part of your life. To, to pray this way means you're, you're going to have to find time to keep doing it. 
It means that even as you move through the day, their, their well-being will be on your mind. And that explains what comes next. We're praying for you, and we are thinking about you. Verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast enough hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So here are the three things that he's thinking about when he thinks about them, your work of faith and your labors of love and your steadfastness of hope. And as he remembers them before God, he, he's focusing, he's keeping them in mind before God. He's like laying them out before God and saying, God, you know these people. You, you've been at work in their lives, and, and, and look, here's the evidence of it. So we're, we're praying that we're we're keeping them in mind. It's not that you, you forgot about them and you suddenly remembered. It's just like the Lord Jesus says about the Lord's table, do this in remembrance of me. Not that we're going to forget Jesus, but when we remember him, we want to keep in mind what he came to do and, and how he brought us into the family. Sometimes what we remember about people is what they've done to hurt us. We'll say something like, I'll never forget what you did to me. Other times we keep in mind some kindness they did. I'll never forget what you did for me. But Paul thinks of them in a more comprehensive way. He thinks of them, first off, in their work of faith. That is the work that their faith produced. These new believers, they were not sunshine patriots. They didn't just wither under affliction. They didn't just make an emotional decision, and then you can't find them the next week. These new believers had weathered the onslaught of the angry mob. They had rallied to protect Paul and Silas. They had seen to it that they were safely conducted out of the city. The fact of the matter is that genuine faith in Christ changes how you view life and, and what you consider important. It, it makes you glad to help your brother and sister in crisis. And because you're born again, the, the love of God is welling up in your heart for them. It fuels your battle against sin. It, it leads you to obey God's commands instead of resenting them because you believe in His goodness and you believe that following Him is the best life there is. God's not holding you off from the good life. He's introducing you to the good life. It steers you. Your faith steers you away from what you know is wrong because you know it's harmful to others and to yourself and dishonoring to God. This faith calls you to a life of self-denial and cross-bearing as you follow Jesus all the way home. It, it makes you generous because that's the way your heavenly Father is. And because you know you have an inheritance beyond value waiting for you that you can't lose. It calls you to take risk for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of other people. And, and that in particular stood out to the Apostle Paul and quite frankly to all the world about these believers in Thessalonica. Here the enemy comes against them to destroy them, but what the enemy does is to amplify what God was actually doing in their life. If it hadn't been for the hostility, the hostility actually gave them a platform. The hostility helped them spread the message. Sometimes we fear the hostility as if it's going to shut down the gospel. Probably not. It's like throwing gasoline on the fire. It, it, 
it actually brings people into focus and their willingness to suffer, their willingness to do so with joy was such that the whole region, Paul's going to say all of Macedonia, that's northern Greece, and then all of Achaia, that's southern Greece. In other words, the entire nation of Greece, and then he goes beyond that, and the rest of the world are talking about this change that's happened, where you turned from serving idols to serve the living and true God. Well, how do they know they were doing that? Because they're getting beat up for it, and they're still staying the course. And Paul says, we don't even need to say anything. Like, we don't have to prove. We don't have to prove that the gospel works. We don't have to prove that, that this is for real, that Jesus really is the Messiah, because your lives show it. That's part of our problem in our, in our culture is it's not evident enough the difference between those that are truly trusting in Jesus and those that aren't. And God has a way of taking these times of trial and difficulty and bringing out this treasure of showing who's, who, are, who are the people that are truly His. They come out like gold. And it lets them shine, and it advances the gospel. Their work of faith, you know, it, it wasn't just, you know, the kinds of things you would check off of the box. It was just the, their whole lifestyle in the face of this hostility was, was stunning, your work of faith. And then your labors of love. Labor is to toil to the point of exhaustion. And we, when we work that way, we sometimes ask ourselves whether it's worth it what it takes out of you? Well, love answers yes. It's worth it. It's worth laboring to the point of exhaustion. Love is the hallmark of born-again people with God's life in them. The Apostle John taught us that in the letter of 1 John. Love for God, love for others. It's not theoretical. It it can't remain passive in the face of human need. It's long-suffering and kind. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't hold grudges. It endures. It bears all things. It believes in God. It believes in people as image bearers of God and that, that they can be and do far beyond what you might expect if Jesus has made them his own. It fuels hope. It is labors of love that mark these believers out, and then their steadfastness of hope. Steadfastness is often translated patience or endurance, and it literally means to remain under. So it's a picture of a, of a heavy load, but you're bearing up under that load. In all the downward pressure of life, in all the seasons of life, all its burdens and afflictions, its disappointments and sorrows, Christian hope bears up under the load. Hope is not wishful thinking. It is certainty regarding the future. And because of our faith and the reliability of the promises of God, we are certain that the best is yet to come that all His promises will come true. We believe that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the, the shining splendor yet to be revealed in us. We can say with the psalmist, 
Psalm 23, 6, surely goodness and mercy, that steadfast love, shall follow me, pursue me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, all this that the psalmist declares is future-oriented. Whatever days we have left on earth, you're going to pursue me with your goodness and your steadfast love so I don't have to worry. And when it's all said and done, it only gets better. When I say goodbye to this earth, it only gets better. God's home will be my home, and I'll live there forever. The heavenly city, the capital of the universe, which will one day descend to the earth, is my hometown. My name is written in the city register, the Lamb's Book of Life. The new heaven, the new earth, sinlessness, immortality, this is my inheritance. I have it because I'm part of the family, and I'm part of the family by the grace of God. When chapter 1 ends, it talks about their waiting expectantly for Jesus the Savior to return. That hope fueled their endurance. Knowing our certain future helps us bear up under the pressure no matter where it's coming from. Lies and mistreatment, being vilified, physical harm, confiscation of property, imprisonment, even execution. None of these things need shake us. Nor should aging or cancer or the death of a loved one or the loss of employment or any other trial common to human beings because none of it can strip us of our guaranteed future. None of it can drive the Spirit of God from our lives. None of it can break our relationship with Christ. Nothing can separate us from His love. Not angels or demons, not life or death. No wonder Paul calls us super conquerors in Romans 8. The believers in Thessalonica are thriving despite their faith being under fire. The hostility has not quenched their faith or their love. They are surviving and thriving. They're bearing up under the pressure. And for that, Paul is rejoicing and thanking God. And Paul thinks in the believers in Thessalonica, he calls to mind these divinely created qualities, their work of faith, their labors of love, their steadfastness of hope. It's no wonder that Paul and Silas and Timothy are thanking God for them because these are all God things. When you think of the believers you know, think on these things in their lives as well, because these qualities mark them as God's own, just as they mark you as God's own. Let the presence of these treasures bring ongoing praise to God from the depths of your heart. If you're going to thrive in a hostile world when your faith is under fire, you need a thankful heart for what God is doing in your life and in the lives of the believers you know. Focus your mind there. It will be refreshment for your soul. It's not a denial of the hard things. The hard things just are the setting. They're the ones that, that provide the contrast to these beautiful things. It will help you put all those hard things in perspective. 
let us say with Paul to our fellow believers, I am thankful to God for you. We're connected to you. We are praying for you. We are thinking about you, your work of faith, your labors of love, your steadfastness of hope. God, help us live this way. Let's pray. Oh, God, I do thank you for your children gathered here. Lord, I pray for them, that you would sustain them, that you would preserve them, that you would use them. Lord, as I look into their faces, and I know some of the variety of trials that they face, and God, I pray that you'll protect them, that you'll use them, that you'll give them joy. And Lord, I also pray for those who have yet to trust in Jesus. They are made in your image. The only path of peace will be through your grace to them. May they receive it in faith. For it's in Christ's name we pray.